0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I'm joined today by my guest, Warren Zanes. Warren is a member of the band The Del Fuegos, teaches at New York University, and is the author of several books, including a biography on Tom Petty. His latest book is Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, and is published by Crown Publishing Group. Warren, thank you so much for joining me
0: today. Thank you for having me.
1: So first thing, can you just tell us what your book is about?
0: Um, You know, speaking really generally, uh, it's about the creative process. It's about the creative process um, in what I think is one of its most uh, unexpected moments in popular music, and it all relates to a very particular person, Bruce Springsteen. But this is a record, the only record in his discography that he made not knowing he was making a record, which is really important to the story. But it's also an event that takes place in 1981 into 1982, where we're perched on the threshold of digital world uh so that's my long answer to your short question
1: no it seems like a very obvious um question considering the book is called the making of bruce springsteen's nebraska but it is more uh, it is more than just the writing and recording of that album there's a lot of uh deep analysis into the culture as well and i want to get to moving on to that analysis of the culture and your experiences with that um So one thing that's very clear about this book is that it's very deeply personal regarding your admiration for Springsteen and the Nebraska album. And you open up with a story about one of your band performances in 1985. Can you tell us what happened at that show?
0: Yeah. um, You know, I got my copy of Nebraska when it came out. And uh, it was as I was going into my senior year. I was a scholarship student at Phillips Andover Academy in uh, in fact, I was, I was busted by my house counselor for um, having a couple ounces of pot and a case of beer on a Monday night, and I was listening to Nebraska. And it was about two years after that, uh, uh, rather than going to college, I joined my brother's rock and roll band, and we were, we were playing a gig in Greensboro, North Carolina, and at the Rhinoceros Club. And we were about to go on stage and Bruce Springsteen walked into our dressing room and he was a a hero of ours. Uh, In New Hampshire, you know, around the time of his first and second records, no one really knew who he was. And my brother found him and we felt like he belonged to us. So, there I was, still in my teens, 1985, and Bruce Springsteen walked into our dressing room in a crappy little club. And uh, it was a big moment for us, you know, making contact with someone who was all but mythological to us. And it was was both an endorsement and, and it was, you know, contact with this world that we had been dreaming of, you know, wanting to be a part of. And he broke through this wall, kind of took us by the hand and, um, you know, led us a few feet deeper into this territory that had really only been alive in our imagination. So it was it was it was a big deal for us, and uh, you know, one part of me. Many years later, decades later, uh, going into Nebraska as a topic for a full-length book, uh, you know, I've, I was one part that, you know, teenager, and one part the man who had kept returning to this particular album, Nebraska, whenever there was a tempest of one kind or another in my life, whether it was divorce, you know, troubles with a sibling, what have you. Um, Nebraska was a place I would go to, and I didn't fully know why. You know, so I had a number of questions to answer when I started writing him. And one of them was, what is this personal connection? Why do I feel like I belong among the desperate people um, in the stories told in Nebraska? And, you know, I think I got a few answers for myself, but the bigger question was not personal. It was why would an artist going into his sixth official recording on the heels of his first number one album that contained his first top ten single make a record record? like Nebraska, which was unfinished, imperfect, not the kind of record that could even be played on the radio. It was such a left turn. I wanted to know more about why he did it.
1: So let's explore a little bit into why Springsteen made this album. Um but first I kind of want to understand a bit of context and thank you for sharing that story because I I think first of all it's just a really cute story. But What's really remarkable about it is that that's when born in the USA was, was rather inescapable. And so before we start talking about Nebraska, um, which had come out a couple of years pr- prior, um, I'm someone who wasn't alive yet when born in the USA was a big thing. And so I want to hear from you what the context of born in the USA was and what that meant for people hearing Springsteen for the first
0: time. <laughs> yeah. Born in the USA was just, uh, it was a phenomenon, And, um, you know, when he came into our dressing room in 1985, he was just at the top of the pop music world. He wasn't at the top of the rock and roll world, the rock world. He was at the top of the music world. And uh, you, you just couldn't get bigger. So when I say mythological, he was already mythological for us prior to born in the USA. But he just tapped into a kind of success you know it was single after single off of born in the usa and it you know today bruce springsteen is is out playing stadiums and you know born in the usa was an important link to that future so uh it's it's really Um, You know, to contextualize Bruce Springsteen in 1985, you just got to imagine the biggest of the big. And uh, the funny thing about that kind of success is that it obscured much of what came before it. Born in the USA, you know, there it is, his seventh record. And it was so big that a lot of people who were, like, discovering him in that moment didn't know what came before it. And Nebraska was what came immediately before it. And during the making of Nebraska, he was also making Born in the USA. And, in fact, he put the bulk of Born in the USA on the shelf so that he could pursue this other odd, really non-commercial, Recording Nebraska. Something was compelling him to make what, from some perspectives, was a terrible career decision. So
1: the mythology of Springsteen is very active during Born in the USA, and you say that it was such a huge success that it obscured everything from the past. So for hearing Born in the USA as your introduction to Springsteen, what was that experience like for you to hear Nebraska
0: for the first time? Well, it you know like I, like i said we were <clears throat> excuse me for my throaty voice i've got a combination of uh, a <laughs> cold and laryngitis um we were we were in from album number 2 growing up in new hampshire and um we really felt like he belonged to us and he was he had his finger on experiences that somehow related to ours so there was a deep identification with this artist in particular so by the time nebraska came we were committed to bruce springsteen so when he gave us nebraska you know i can't lie and say i put it on and it made sense to me it didn't It, it i had to kind of stay with it. But I stayed with it because I believed in him as an artist. But Nebraska was it was so unexpected, not just from an industry standpoint, a marketplace standpoint, but for a lot of fans, it was like, where did he go? You know, this isn't the guy who did Backstreets. This isn't, this isn't Thunder Road. This isn't racing in the streets. Uh, Is this what he's going to be like from here on out. It it was a real curveball, And, but I think we were like so many other fans who went, we trust this guy, you know, he's already with us. So we're going to give Nebraska the time that it takes. And it took some time. It was, you know, it's not that, it's not like he's the only person who was making a, recording that was hard to find and you had to reach for. It's just, this isn't what you were seeing at the top of the charts. That's the odd part, you know, to see an artist to go from his first number one album to this thing that had an obscure, strange, uh, difficult quality. It was like generally pop music at the top of the charts is reaching out, trying to pull you in. This is a record that you had to go looking for, and that was unusual, still is.
1: So you write in your book that you can't get to Nebraska without going back to the river, which was his album prior to Nebraska, huge success, double album, his first top 10 single, massive tour to support it. But Bruce's life at that time was rather difficult. He he wasn't making that much money. He didn't have a, a love life at that time. So when he starts going into recording Nebraska, or the early stages of that, it was very fascinating to me that he was influenced by Alan Vega, who was the lead singer of Suicide, while they were recording at the power station. And Bruce said of Suicide's music that it called to him and spoke to some part of him that music doesn't always get to, and that it was such a major influence on Nebraska. Could you tell us more about those experiences at that time and the influences the group Suicide had on Springsteen and Nebraska?
0: Yeah. So so let me say um you know Bruce's memoir Born to Run which I you know I recommend to anyone who's interested in Bruce Springsteen. Uh when he covers he's got a lot to cover in that book. So it's 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 long but it has to move to capture everything. And Nebraska goes by pretty quick. But right after Nebraska um He describes this road trip from New Jersey to Los Angeles and a a kind of depressive episode, a breakdown that happens um, about two-thirds of the way through that trip. And as a reader, I was just putting Nebraska and its tales of desperate people together with Springsteen's story that he so candidly shares about a kind of nervous breakdown, and you know, in my mind, I'm like, where he went in Nebraska is surely connected to what happened to him. Now, I needed to be able to interview him to really pursue that line of thought, and um, I was able to get to him, and he was really generous in. Um, you know, answering some questions about this and helping me to understand it to go deeper on it. Um, but one of the clues that there was trouble, uh, as you say, happened at the time of the river. He starts to get into Alan Vega and Martin Rev's group Suicide, which is really, it's like an electronic duo. They were, you know, they were playing gigs as early as 1970. But, you know, For people listening to this, go check out the suicide recording of Frankie Teardrop. And it will give you a sense of um, how far away suicide is from what you might think of as, you know, the territory in which Bruce Springsteen was working. It's very, very dark, very troubling stuff, which... (coughs) Over time, more people have started to celebrate, but, you know, it was a a tough music to digest. And here was Springsteen really connecting to it. And what I think he was connecting to was a music that could go way beyond popular music's native territory of, you know, romance, love, longing, loss, into violence, despair you know, the highest levels of, of angst and human trouble. And so suicide sent this message of like music can keep going further and further out and still be viable as uh you know, a, a cultural product. And, you know, Springsteen said, you know, suicide was very important to Nebraska. One critic, Uh, include this in the book, said, you know, without suicide, there would be no Nebraska. So Springsteen, there's some simultaneity there that Springsteen was going through some psychological thing that he didn't exactly have his finger on. Um, There's that saying, deal with your past or your past will deal with you. He was right in that place where his past was starting to deal with him. And he, he, on some level, went into that musically and gave us Nebraska as a result. But he needed things like suicide to, like, provide a kind of model. And Terrence Malick's movie, Badlands, about the Starkweather murder spree, he needed that to, you know, remind him that, you know, the products of culture, go, they go to these places. They go to places that are, you know, as difficult in the subject matter as you can imagine. And, um, you know, the, the thing, you know, this, when I said to Springsteen, when you go into these places in your own plat, the past, and really we're talking about the places of trauma, you shouldn't do, do it alone. And, and he looked at me and said, I didn't know that then. And so Nebraska is this document of a man compelled to go into the hardest part of his life, not knowing why, not knowing what was back there, uh, but on some intuitive level understanding if he wanted to move forward into his life, he had to go back there. And, And then he comes to the realization that moving forward in his life, you should never do it alone again.
1: I think that's such an interesting thing that he acknowledged that he didn't know how to do this alone or, or what he was doing. Because when you see the kind of personal reflection he was going through at that time and the things he was reading, you mentioned Ter- Terrence Malick's film, Badlands. He was also reading Flannery O'Connor. But – you, you at this time he's all you write that he's getting to some kind of conscious reconsideration of what he should be and do as a public figure and I know several years later like the big when we think of like Bruce and Reagan in the eighties it's Reagan's uh, appropriation of Born in the USA for his um, uh, while he's running for president during his campaign but there, there's so much going. On with him in terms of returning to the past and reconciling what it means to be a massive cultural figure now, and how did that past influence his evolution as like a public figure?
0: Yeah, well, I I think there's a simultaneity to this. You know, it's funny um, people who are are so public, you know, record makers um, could be could be politicians, you know, they're, they're being consumed as finished works, you know, finished works as human beings. Um, but I think it's easy for us to forget that, that, you know, they're, they're just like us, they're, they're in formation throughout their lives. And I think Bruce Springsteen is this incredibly, you know, as I said, intuitive person, um, incredibly smart guy, and I think he knew that simultaneously he needed to go look at his past to understand who he is, uh, but also to see who he could be for the public that was, you know, digesting him, taking him in, leaning on him, Um, and so it's a very sophisticated thing to go through, and I think at that point, what what fascinates me is he was doing so much of it intuitively. He comes into therapy, you know, at the end of at the end of this, you know, between Nebraska and Born in the USA, he starts actively getting help, and I so admire him for going public and telling this story. You know, he 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 comes up in an era where if you were getting you know, therapeutic help. And you didn't tell people. It was, you know, it was like a thing of shame. And a lot of, you know, a lot of public figures get a lot of help but don't talk about it. And I admire that Springsteen did. Um, And that's one of the ways in which, you know, his assessment of who am I as a public figure, there's the political dimension of I'm someone who can provide another view of America as Ronald Reagan paints this uh, very pretty picture? Um, so there's the political. And then there's, you know, the Bruce Springsteen who gets therapeutic help. And as a public figure, he got to that moment where he's like, I'm ready to tell people about this. Uh, so there's a, a there's a consciousness about You know, on one side, who he is, that's that very personal project going into his past. And then who he is for others, the public figure. And, you know, it's easy to take pot shots at people who have big public lives. Um, But I think Bruce has done, you know, an amazing job. It's been valuable for me personally. uh, But the way he has, you know, gone about his public life with this consciousness of what he means to us. You know, in a simple way, I say, man, you know, some days it's like, nobody is better at being Bruce Springsteen than Bruce Springsteen. You know, and that sounds like a foolish statement, but I think there's a lot to it. And what I mean by that is he's done it very consciously, knowing we're out there that we need him just like he needed others as he's been coming into formation.
1: How the album came to be released is such an incredibly fascinating story. And I don't want to go into too much detail here because reading through your book and just reading through the process of how it was recorded and how they got it from the tape is it does so much in breaking down that mythology of the album, um, certainly for for people who weren't there at that time. So um, I want to leave that for for people to read in your book. So I want to talk about some of the songs from the album. And there's a couple that deal with Bruce's childhood. Mansion on the Hill is a narrative about class and wealth disparity, and was and was a gateway into Bruce's childhood. But the title song, Nebraska you write was a way into childhood trauma and it's a song that was based on the true story of a teenager who went on a killing spree. And I wanted to know more about how that story, Bruce found something that kind of mirrored his own trauma. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Well, it's interesting because I, I feel like, um, that's, that's still one, uh, yeah, so let's just, let's break it down a little bit. So he he sees this movie based on the Charles Starkweather serial murders that happened in 1958, and uh, you know I think it's ten people. I can't remember if it's eleven, um, but uh, somehow he looks. He sees this movie. He gets interested. <coughs> in the murder spree generally, uh, you know, kind of does some research around it, gets the book Carol, which is about Charles Starkweather's accomplice, Carol Ann Fugate, finds the woman who wrote it. He's doing all this stuff and says, some part of his early childhood he saw in this film. Um, The tricky thing is it's like, it's certainly not a one-to-one correspondence. He didn't experience uh, a serial murder in his childhood. But I think that, you know, the interesting thing is that he could look at something so grisly and see his childhood reflected. That's interesting, you know, because when we're very young, um, we experience, you know, the, the violences of, you know, let's say, generally neglect in a very, very heightened way. And so, to me, it makes sense that he would see this, but you can't imagine that it's the literal content of the Starkweather story that somehow embodies his own childhood. It's like, it's the intensity of feeling that connects him to that. We took it all.
1: I wanted to ask about that song because of a really interesting concept you discussed with Bruce during one of your interviews. And so for context uh, for listeners, Bruce's family moved into his paternal grandparents' home for a couple of years uh, during the 1950s and
0: through age six,
1: through age six. Yes. Um, and this experience would have a hugely profound effect on him. And in your interview, you ask Bruce about transgenerational trauma can you tell us more about what that concept is and how it connects to Bruce's personal experiences in the making of Nebraska?
0: Yeah, I, I, the term transgenerational haunting, I got that from uh, a book called "The Shell and the Kernel" by Abraham and Torek. and they are—they're basically coming out of uh, you know a French psychoanalytic tradition. But the idea of transgenerational haunting is that the trauma from one generation can be passed to the next, but it can also skip generations. Like the trauma of a grandparent generation can be transferred to the grandchild. And sometimes it gets transmitted in the most powerful way through silence. So you don't even have to know about what happened to the grandparent generation to have it structure your psyche as the grandchild. And so, you know, Abraham and Torek will talk about the power of, you know, secrets. Like, let's say there's a, you know, in my own family, there was a a suicide. Um, My mother's uncle. So you're talking about a three-generation schema there. And it just got whispered about. But when the adults start to whisper or, you know, the child can perceive something not being talked about and it's got this extra power. So whatever is the, the, the anxiety, the fear, the terror of one generation can be passed re- with great effect over generations, and, um, you know, I just thought it was a concept that made sense in relation to Bruce Springsteen's life, because when living with his grandparents, the place was haunted by the early death of, you know, Springsteen's father's sister, and, you know, springsteen's grandparents relationship to that loss it 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 informed the character of the household he's in from you know ages one to six and it was very validating when you know talking to him about it he he latched onto the idea he's just like yeah that makes that makes sense you know he saw it through the lens of his own experience and could validate the concept. And, um, I think it's a potent one, you know, I think uh, in a lot of cases, we think if we don't tell someone about something, it won't affect them. And what Abraham and Torek are saying, if you don't tell someone about something, you might be ensuring that it affects them deeply.
1: So one of the ways in which this transgenerational haunting concept, um, kind of plays out across the album is there's this kind of dichotomy of familial allegiance and conflict. And you hear this and th- throughout the album, and there's, you know, um, as part of this childhood perspective, can you tell us more about how that theme of that family allegiance and conflict manifests itself across the album?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that, you're hunting big game there. Let me just say that first of all. Um, but just going to Bruce's grandparents quickly, because I think this is the <coughs> excuse me. This is the door into that. Um, so, because of the loss of their daughter, Bruce's grandparents, when he arrived, he's the first grandchild. In a kind of tribute to the early death of their daughter, when that grandchild Bruce arrives they like suspend discipline. He can do what he wants. It's this, you know, radical empowerment that like in what Bruce says is like you would think this is what kids would like, but it's exactly what they don't want. Um, But that's the, you know, awful gift that he's given. And he says, it made me and it destroyed me at the same time. And I think that's, an, an amazing statement on his part. So, you know, there's this question of, on the familial level, you know, when we think we're giving someone a gift, what are we giving them? You know, we need to think about that. So in relation to the songs of Nebraska, think about highway patrolmen. You know, the one brother works for the police. The other brother is the one you know that the police are going to be locking up after bar fights, and in this case, you've got two brothers, and you know it's a kind, of, you know it's hard not to have a little bit of a Cain and Abel reading. You know, I also think of like a river runs through it, the Norman McLean book that the movie was made of, but you know, in the final scene in that song, the one brother who works for the police, lets the other brother go. He puts being a brother over the law. You know, what he should be doing is pulling his brother over, putting handcuffs on him. And instead, he lets him go and he watches his taillights fade. And you can map the relationship between Bruce and his grandparents onto that. You know, it's like there's the law, pull that brother over, put him in jail, and then there's the family, let him go. And the hard thing in life is to find the middle ground between those two. We tend toward extremes. And because Bruce's grandparents tended toward extremes, they made him and they destroyed him.
1: I think that's such a fascinating thing because it seems to suggest this idea that there are no absolutes and that life is a gray area. And that's one of the incredible qualities about not just how Nebraska sounds, but also the songwriting itself. And that's helped by the the, the story that Bruce didn't know he was making an album. So with that in mind, I want to read a quote from your book I found really interesting about this process uh, in which you say, For songwriter and record makers of Springsteen's analog generation, a psychological divide often separated the recording of the demos from the recording of albums intended for release. Demo recording had little to none of the pressure of album making. So with that, I wanted to bring this up because most people don't know what it's like to record an album. So as a a musician yourself, knowing you're listening to recordings that weren't originally intended for release, how does that impact your connection and relationship with Nebraska?
0: Yeah. Um, so what he was doing in his bedroom, he had a four-track cassette recorder, a TAC 144 and he was making demos. And the demos were intended just as reference material. You could take those demos into the studio, play them for the band and his fellow producers, and then they go re-record the material at a proper, you know, commercially appropriate, you know, audio quality. Um, But when you're recording demos in that situation, you're not worrying about perfection. You're not thinking about your audience in the same way. You're not thinking about it as a product to be released to your public. And so there's... Um, there's there's less self consciousness around it. It's almost like um, singing in the shower versus singing in front of an audience. You're gonna you're gonna take leaps in the shower that you wouldn't in front of an audience. You're gonna be going to the interior in ways in the shower that you wouldn't in front of the audience. And so when you're listening to Nebraska and you're listening to a guy who doesn't think he's making a record, there's an intimacy that is startling at times. And, you know, I think it was very brave as a move um, to expose himself in that way, you know, after talking about singing in the shower and saying expose himself, I guess, uh, I didn't intend it in that way, but maybe it's right.
1: So you speak with quite a few musicians who were inspired by Nebraska, such as Matt Berninger from The National, in which you quote him as saying that it was through Nebraska that set so many bands on their way. What did what influence did that album have on you musically?
0: Well, I think you know I'm I'm no different from many others. Um, <clears throat> Nebraska said, uh, if you've got a good song and you've got a good story, no amount of cleaning it up is going to make it that much better. Focus on the song. Focus on the story. Focus on the emotion of the thing. Are you compelled to write it? If you are, there's probably something there. You know, it can be imperfect it can be raw it can be unfinished but if it's kind of you know valid as a story and a sentiment it's probably going to be okay and so it takes it takes a certain set of pressures off and you know i like a great song in its raw form and so it shifts your attention from you know trying to make good songs Great in the studio to just trying to write great songs
1: in your book you reprint the comments Bruce made about the recordings that he had left on a note for for John Lando in reviewing those notes did anything surprise you about the comments um, of the material?
0: Yeah, I think he didn't even know what he had um, you know he, he 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 threw these things down on this cassette. Um, but because they were demos, I don't think he was thinking a, about the material in the way that he would uh, a record he was preparing for release. So in the notes to John Landau, his manager and fellow producer, um, you know, a song like the one we just mentioned, Highway Patrolman, he's questioning it. Not sure if this is a good one or not. You know, the tone is is surprisingly light in a way. And um, there there seems to be a trace of self-doubt, uncertainty. uh, But it suggests the stage he was at. I don't know what this stuff is. We'll find out as we go down the road. But, you know, we know Nebraska is Nebraska record that came out. And it's got this... (coughs) It's got this haunted deep you know dark quality and the notes are like they're so light in contrast to what we know of as the release that it's it's you know it's startling in its own way
1: and you also interviewed Bruce for the book, um, which were incredibly intimate um, and very thought-provoking conversations and so in those conversations, having all this several decade history and experience with Nebraska, what surprised you most about the album from those conversations?
0: Um, I think the most surprising thing was how I knew that Born in the USA and Nebraska overlapped. I didn't know the degree to which they were intertwined. Um, They're they're just, it's almost like They took a meat cleaver to separate one from the other. You know, I I still saw sequence, you know, one came before the other and it's just not accurate. And so that surprised me.
1: This is just an off the cuff question I was just thinking about because that was a big surprise for me as well to learn just how intertwined both those albums were. You know, a lot of the material that was finalized for Born in the USA was recorded during the Nebraska sessions Um, just as an off the cuff question, do you know if there's any plans for like the born in the USA, Nebraska versions or vice versa coming out um, at any point?
0: I I know of no plans. um, and, And I'll say this, you know, one thing that I think is amazing about Bruce Springsteen is just how much music is coming out of the man. And at 74 years old, there's still a lot of music coming out of him. So I don't see that, you know, they do a lot of legacy work along the way, re-releasing albums that haven't been put out. Um, But he's current, you know, he's, he's, so he's doing two things at once, doing new work, doing legacy projects. And there's a shocking abundance He's just, he's an artist that I look at and I say, that guy could still make his best record. That's interesting to me. You know, there are are a lot of um, people who came up in the same time as Bruce Springsteen, who I wouldn't say that of. But he's vital. He is ongoing. And he's simultaneously doing a lot of these legacy projects, reaching back live recordings, studio recordings. But I haven't heard any murmurings of a package going back to that Nebraska born in the USA moment.
1: You're you're absolutely right that he's still making really great recordings. And I loved um, that that Western Stars, that's what it was, the 2019 album that had um, uh, such great tracks. I think like... um, uh, what was that song that was like uh, my, my my miracle I really oh. love that one that was off that album
0: I mean that was like that was exciting to listen to i I got when I first listened to it I got a, a tunnel of love feeling I was like oh this this feels like you know it's a different song cycle it's a different production but I felt I felt him focused in the studio, writing at the height of his powers. Um, You know, that's thrilling to get to watch an artist grow and develop as you yourself, you know, move through life, you know, having kids, getting married, getting divorced, and this artist keeps making music alongside you. That's, uh, That's thrilling.
1: So when you first heard Born in the USA when it came out and that you know was the monumental album that made him the mythological figure when you found out that relationship to Nebraska did it alter your relationship to to that album and its reception and legacy
0: Well Nebraska going deep on it made me listen to everything differently um You know, that line from, um, uh, I think it's, I'm on fire. Sometimes it's like someone took a knife, edgy and dull, and cut a six-inch valley in the middle of my skull. Um, I may have gotten it wrong, so forgive me uh, for those who are on the meticulous side. But what a line. I mean, what a line. And Nebraska, And it's that does not have a redemptive quality that goes to that suicide place of darkness. I then listen to some of the lyrics, whether it's on Dancing in the Dark, you know, um, I'm going down, I'm on fire, you know, it's like, oh, they, it's not all glory days. Um, He's carrying over. A lot that he explores in Nebraska to Born in the USA, you know, at the level of the lyric and the emotion, they are not separable.
1: So I just had a couple more questions to kind of close this out and discuss the legacy and the experience of listening to this album. Uh, So just like how many were introduced to Bruce at the peak of his fame through Born in the USA, now that he is the legendary icon, rock and roll hall of famer that he is now, you know, four decades on, your book and the story that it tells and the information that it reveals about this um, incredible album, your book could lead someone to have Nebraska as their entry point to, their, to Bruce's music. Like that's their first Bruce album. What would be your advice for those listening to Nebraska as their first Bruce album?
0: Well, that would be amazing. I like that idea. I hope that happens. Um, that's, that's an interesting question um, where to send them next. Um, I mean, probably the best thing is to like, just leave them to find their own way. But if I were to, if I were given the role of guide, I might say, okay, now you need to go to darkness on the edge of town and where there still is a trace of redemption. You need to hear the band, um, and I feel like that's a great E Street Band record, and and then I might send them. Now I'm going to send you up to Human Touch because I think Human Touch. Um, there's you know, there's a moment where you know he's disbanded the E Street Band. And he's trying something new. And I think a lot of people feel like he never should have broken up the E Street Band. And my take is that he had to break up the E Street Band so that we could have the E Street Band. You know, they're on, it's 2023, they're going to be on tour in 2024. And I think that's happening because at a certain point, he let them all go. Again, this is like a theme, but I think he's wildly intuitive. And I think he's a great band leader. And sometimes the best thing a band leader can do is break up the band. So I'm going to send your you know, imaginary listener from Nebraska back to darkness, up to human touch. Um, then I might send them all the way back to greetings from Asbury Park you know, before he was making records as a conscious record maker. He didn't, it was moving too fast. Like they threw up a mic and he was expected to make a record and he did. Um, but the, the thoughtful record making really, I think, begins in the second record. Um, so, yeah, that's a, it's a fun idea. I don't know. I bet if I was able to guide someone in that way, Eventually, they'd know enough to look at me and question me and go, what a crazy-ass journey you just brought me on. And they'd do it all differently for somebody else. But that's kind of the joy of, you know, transmitting these stories. But I love long careers. I love deep, thoughtful, long careers. Um, I feel like, you know, for my students, I see them having that experience with Taylor Swift. You know whether they love her or not. Many of them grew up with her. Um, the long career is increasingly rare. You know, Beyonce gives people that. You know, there's a few artists. Um, Springsteen was huge for me in that regard.
1: You know, it's it's a fascinating thing about these long careers because there is so many entry points and there's so many different kind of experiences and no two people are going to have the same reaction or journey. And you know, I know I I I kind of we talked about the generational thing and I and I I'm a bit younger, was born in '87, so all this is like hindsight for me. And in preparation for this interview, of course, I listened to Nebraska, but I was also listening to Born in the USA, and that's an album that that had seven top 10 singles. And as I was listening to that and the singles, I don't remember most of those singles on the radio. Like, you know, when I think of like the Springsteen, Born in the USA songs is Born in the USA, Dancing in the Dark, and Glory Days, and I'm on Fire. Like those like are the ones in order that I, I would recall hearing on the radio. And so the advantage of having like these like, like long career arcs, and the different ways that people can go about it and have their own experiences, it breaks down that mythology. And so for someone, for Nebraska to be their first album, they could go, oh, oh, I've always heard this guy's like my dad rock radio because I kept hearing Dancing in the Dark all, all the time. I, I, I just really, it, it's just very fascinating to me how people at different ages and different experiences can have a different relationship, but still develop an admiration for an artist.
0: Yeah and and that's what the long career allows you know to go to the to the Taylor Swift <coughs> comparison if you enter folklore you're going to be initially surprised by some of the other stuff but the benefit is you then begin to go okay so what what is continuous what is the identity of this artist that connects a folklore to reputation. And that's how you arrive at your picture of that artist, is what's continuous, what is present in all cases. And the long career is what allows us that. You know, it could be be Randy Newman. You know, if, if somebody only knows him from Toy Story, well, they're in for one amazing ride. So
1: on this note and on, and on this subject, I want to close this interview with a quote from your book. And which you say after decades in the world, Nebraska is one of those recorded works recognized for its simplicity, but also for its density. It's many layeredness. It's a record you come back to a record with more than its share of mystery, a record that keeps mattering and keeps throwing off new meanings. Maybe it's the record of spring scenes as the most collaborative with the the listener. Unfinished, you could say he left it for us to complete. He trusted his art and trusted us to do something with it, end quote. And so my question is, do you think that that trust was – do you think we eventually did something with it?
0: Yeah. uh, I love its time release quality. You know, we're here. 40 years later not in in, and look we haven't even talked about 40 years there's a lot of this lately i'm getting a little bit bored with it frankly you know it's been 50 years since and it doesn't matter like dark side of the moon it's been 50 years it that that's well okay great but we're here talking about nebraska not because of anniversaries We're here because we're still tapping its mystery. Um, That is something. So generally, the success of a record is measured upon release. How did it do out there? Nebraska is like, how did it do over all these decades? And it did really well because it stood as this moment when an artist... Because of, like, some storm brewing internally, was compelled to make this record, write these songs, record them in the way that he did, was compelled to do it, and it was against all that the marketplace asked of him. And I don't want to create an easy dichotomy between art and commerce, but... You know, when you're making records to sell, you are in the marketplace. But he was going through something that forced him, compelled him to turn his back on marketplace demands and do something commercially that was really almost completely for himself. Something he had to do for himself that he gave to us. You know, that is inspiring and it reminds me of, you know, what we all do this for when we make things. You know, I think we make it to advance along the path ourselves but in hopes that it will do something for others as they advance along the the path on their own. It's, I think he busted it down to the really raw facts of human communication, you know, much like a Paleolithic cave painter did. You know, there was no marketplace at that point. You know, they were down to the rudiments of we need food. You know, and here's this, you know, ritual enacted uh, to kind of, you know, call on the spirit of the hunt. And I think Springsteen did something pretty damn primeval with Nebraska. And, you know, when that's present in art, I think... It's going to be a vital art.
1: Warren, I really appreciate your time and for joining me today. This was an extraordinary book, and I think you should be very proud. I, I very much loved it, and I really enjoyed talking with you today about it.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Warren Zanes. His latest book is Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, and is published by Crown Publishing Group.